You're listening to the Covenant Original Series, The Mountains Are Calling. There is a much greater mission that supersedes your own mission for your church. Because long before this church existed, God had a mission. And that mission was to restore all things back to Himself. Hey, we are continuing in this new series, The Mountains Are Calling. And uh, we kicked off this series last week. And if you were here last week, um, you remember that we, ta- we had this phrase, it's not the church of God that has a mission in the world, but rather it's the God of mission that has a church in the world. It's not the church of God that has a mission in the wor- world, but it's the God of mission that has a church in the world. And so we opened up this series that's really begging the question, are we truly living out the adventure of faith that God has called us to live out? And we're talking about disciples, we're talking about being a disciple, making disciples, we're talking about the the shape and form of the church. We also gave this this kind of idea that uh, before this church existed, before any church existed, clearly we know God existed, but also the mission of God existed, or the Missio Dei, if you will. Look at your neighbor and say, Missio Dei. Right, the mission of God existed long before the church existed. What is the mission of God? Well, we know the mission of God, the Missio Dei, the mission of God is to restore all things, what? Back to himself. And so long before there was a church, there was a mission. And long before there was a mission, there was a man, there was a God-man named Jesus Christ. And we gave this equation. We said that X determines M determines E. What does that mean? Well, X representing Christ, our Christology. In other words, what we know, believe, uh, and, and can recognize about Jesus Christ, biblically, theologically, who we believe Jesus to be, that's called our Christology. Missiology is just that. It's, it's the mission. What is the mission? Something informs that. How do we go and do? And ecclesiology is, in other words, just the shape, the sound, the structure, the form, the texture, the music, whatever, the art from a church. And so we would say a biblically correct, a theologically correct, this is the case we made last week, a foundationally correct church would be this. Our Christology determines or informs our missiology, determines and informs our ecclesiology. In other words, Jesus determines the mission, and Jesus and the mission determine what type of church we have. Amen? The problem is, and we made this point last week, we flipped it. We flipped it. In our culture today, more often than not, church defines Jesus and then defines the mission. In other words, we start with ourselves first. We like to say, well, what kind of church do I want to be at? What should it sound like? What should it smell like? What should it taste like? Where should it be? What kind of people should be in it? What color should they be? What age should they be? We start there. And anytime you start with yourself when you should be starting with Jesus, you know you're in for a bad trip. Can I just, can I just say that? Right? And so we say it like this. Today, our modern churches do it like this. They say ecclesiology determines our Christology, determines our missiology. So we form a church that we like, we, we build a church that we want, and then we fashion a Jesus to fit right inside of it. And then we have a mission. And, and we don't see mission as something we're on. We just see missions as something we do. Or missions is something that we give to. When the fact of the matter and the case we made last week is that each and every one of us are called to live sent. 
We're called to live on mission. And so today what I thought we could do in the sermon entitled The Locust Effect, what I thought we could do is kind of look through and see what it looks like to be a church that has been influenced by our ecclesiology first. Is there a chance, I know this isn't our church, I know this is every other church, but not our church, um, clearly not ours, but, but most churches probably, right, um, might be starting with their ecclesiology. Is there a chance that that's us? And if so, are there indicators and what does that look like? So that's where we're going to be. Is that good? You guys excited about that? Yes? Okay. So I'm going to ask for your permission um, early on. This is going to be a a challenging talk, okay? And it's challenging because God loves us. It's challenging. His word is challenging us because he cares about us. This is going to be a challenging talk for us as a church family, okay? And I'd like for you to give me permission to go ahead and kind of read some tough scripture and put that in some tough perspective. Is that okay? Can you do that? Yes? That's good. I was going to do it anyway, but I'm glad you gave me the go-ahead. Let's do this. Let's go to Revelation chapter 2. That's where we're going to start. This is going to be our anchor text for today. Revelation chapter 2, this is Jesus speaking directly to his church. He lists a number of churches. This is the church in Ephesus. And in about 50 years, 40 years before this is actually written, Ephesus was a church on fire. I mean, they were just killing it. They were doing amazing things for God. And then about 40, 50 years ago, we find this text right here, Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 2, Jesus says this, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake. You have not grown weary. Jesus coming to his church saying, you guys are doing awesome. In this area, in this area, and in this area, you're really doing a great job. I'm very proud of you. I'm commending you. But then look at verse 4. He says this, but I have this against you. In other words, Jesus is saying you're doing great here, you're doing great here, you're doing great here, but there's a problem. He says this, I have this against you. And notice his wording. He says, you've abandoned the love you had at first. Think about that for a moment. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. In essence, what what was it that they first fell in love with? It was Jesus. And so here's a church that's doing all these things and and probably feeling pretty good about it. They're calling out heresy and, and they're uplifting and they're encouraging. And Jesus says, you're doing all this good stuff, but you've forgotten me. He says, remember from where you've fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand. Jesus is, in essence, saying, I'll remove my spirit from you, from its place, unless you repent. Elsewhere, Jesus talks to a church, and he says, you say you're good. You say you're in need of nothing. But I'm here to tell you that your worth is is, is faulty. You are wretched, blind, pitiable, poor, and naked. He said, behold, I stand at the door and knock, and anybody that lets me in, I'll come in and dine with them. Here's the picture of Jesus standing on the outside of his church walls, knocking on the door. The question, it just begs the question, how do we get to a place in a church where we don't even recognize the voice of Jesus? How do we get to a place in a church where we gather together in a space to lift up his name, but he's not there, and we don't know it? I'd like to submit 
that I think in a lot of places, that's exactly where we are today. And I want to discuss it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. We, we don't take it lightly that we get to gather here. May we use our time well. May your word convict us. God, I ask you very specifically today to change us. Renew our minds. Change who we are, our desires, our hopes, our dreams. Please, Father. We love you, and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, Sunday night, as you know, is uh, movie night at the Davenport House. Not just movie night. Uh, we should get a pizza, uh, you know, salad, whatever. And, um, and, uh, and, and we watch National Geographic. We go through all of our Netflix queue, you know, just one after the other, Monkey Island, uh, you know, Predator and Prey, all these different things. Uh, a little while ago, we had to watch the, the migration pattern of the monarch butterfly. That was my wife's choice. She gets to do that once a year. Um, she always chooses migration patterns of animal movies. It's the worst. Um, but, 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 we, but, but a little while ago, there was this fascinating thing. We were watching this series on Africa. And they showed this countryside, which was like really lush and green with vegetation. And all of a sudden, these locusts start flying in. And then from the east, these other locusts start flying in until really at all corners, right, these locusts, and it turns into this big swarm. And you can hear the narrator, of course, any good National Geographic documentary is made by a British actor, you know. And this old man, he's like, you can see the swarms. You know, it's like, they all come for him. <laughs> I'm serious. Um, <laughs> And they come in and they just invade the countryside and they consume every plant. They consume all the trees. They even start eating on the bark. They consume all the grass. They consume everything that is to be consumed. In other words, they consume to the point of destruction. And as I'm watching this, I'm thinking like, man, like those things are really hungry, <laughs> Like, they're really, really hungry, and you would think at some point they would just be satisfied that they would kind of do like we do on Thanksgiving, you know, like kind of push back, take a big sigh, undo the top button, and then just fall asleep. They don't do that. They just like rise up and take off and go to the next place to consume. And that's why a swarm of locusts in certain areas of the world is considered a national or a natural disaster because they will, this never-ending cycle of consume and destroy, consume and destroy, consume and destroy, consumption and destruction. As I'm watching that, I promise you, I had this idea or this thought emerged. I'm watching these bugs destroy this countryside, and I thought, is that what we do with our churches today? I promise you that thought came into my mind. Is this what we do in our churches today? Are we experiencing the locust effect? In many of our churches, I wonder, do we just take and take and take? Do we just eat and eat and eat until we have taken every last ounce, until we've actually destroyed the very place that was our source of life? Quick side note, by the way, when it comes to your church, we don't just feed to be fed. We are fed so that we can feed others. Can I just say that again? We are not just fed. We, we don't just feed to be fed. We are fed so that we can feed others. That, by the way, is the difference between a consumer and a contributor. In fact, turn to the person sitting to your left or your right and say, consumer. And I'll turn to the other person that you rejected the first time and say, contributor. 
That's the difference between a consumer and a contributor. That's the difference between a convert and a disciple. A consumer, listen now, keeps it all for themselves. A consumer is more than happy to cherry pick the best of off the, sacrif- after, off the sacrifice, sweat, and tears of others. But a contributor takes what has been given and then uses it to pour back into it to make it better. And we have to ask, is this idea of consuming versus contributing applicable anywhere else in any other genre of life? The answer is no. Think about if you applied this with your bank account. If you only ever withdrew and never deposited, you'd be overdrawn, bankrupt, probably. If you only from your spouse expected love but never showed love, you'd be divorced. If you ever took a paycheck but never did the work, you'd be fired. This idea of consuming without contribution does not work in anywhere else. So the question must be asked, why do we so consistently do it with Christ and his church? If it doesn't work anywhere else, if it causes ruin everywhere else, why do we so consistently do it to Christ? And his church, Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. Jesus says, deny yourself and follow me. The call of Christ is one of sacrifice, but it seems that the call of the Christian today is one of consumption. And we end up looking like a plague of locusts, just consuming, 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 and destroying, getting up and moving to the next place to consume. And it's easy to see these indicators, by the way, of consumerism within our churches. In fact, here's a couple of them. The consumer says, entice me. The consumer says, entertain me. The consumer says, chase me. The consumer says, serve me. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, a consumer says, entice me, right? What programs do you offer at your church? Uh, what, you know, what can you do for me? Why should I choose your church? Entertain me. But I'll tell you what, your your worship better be good, your lights better be on point, your graphics better be fresh, and your stories better be compelling. By the way, your preaching uh, better not offend me, but it should also keep me awake. Chase me. What are you willing to do to get me to come back? Can you incentivize it a little bit? Maybe throw in a phone, maybe an iPad, at least a little bit of swag? Come on. Serve me. If I'm going to be around here long term, what am I going to get out of this? What are you planning to do to keep me here? And if you don't entice me, and if you don't entertain me, and if you don't chase me, and if you don't serve me, then I'm going to leave. I will leave your church, and I will go someplace else that will serve me. In fact, in the American church, the average church attender shows up once a month, and it's trending towards once every five and six weeks. Now, we might say, wow, but I'll tell you what, the metrics are exactly the same in our own house, once a month. In fact, I'm pumped. We are pumped as pastors, as a staff, as a team. I'm excited. It's a huge win when somebody attends more than once a month. It's a huge win when somebody gives anything financially at all. 
It's a huge win when somebody volunteers. It's a huge win when somebody attends a sea life, a small, a small group. This in and of itself demonstrates just how bad our metrics have had to dip in order to compensate for the locust effect. These are all indicators that we live in a very consumeristic church culture. Listen, it wasn't, ever, it wasn't always this way. It wasn't meant to be this way. Church wasn't always defined by a consumer culture. In fact, there was a day and time when the church was known for a culture of creation. The greatest music used to flow out of the church's doors. The greatest art used to come from inside the church. The greatest theology, the greatest thinkers of our time, politicians, founding fathers, the greatest science and technology used to come from inside the church. But then we outsourced culture. And when we outsourced culture, we started competing with culture. And then we thought, well, maybe we can use the culture to reach the culture. And so we inevitably created a brand new culture, one within our local church, a culture of consumerism. And so what do we do? We thought, well... People are going to be consumers. Let's just appeal to the consumerism <laughs> in an attempt to get people to church. So people, the church rather entered into a new era of marketing campaigns, branding and slogans, clever hashtags, buzzwords, and non-offensive gospel presentations, leaving out the word, casually leaving out the word sin and repentance. And at the end of the day, I wonder if we believe that appealing to a consumer on the basis of his consumption is a better evangelistic tool than just talking about Jesus. We don't say this, because that's not good for the brand. We don't go here, because those aren't our type of people. We don't talk about this because that doesn't play well with our demographic. And I feel like I can just hear the words of Christ saying, you have forgotten me. You've forgotten your first love. See, the real question isn't, am I a consumer? Because you are. I am. We all are. We're born into it. We're brought up into it. The real question is not, am I a consumer? The better question is, where am I applying, applying my consumerism in my faith? Now, we created the core five. We talk about them all the time. You know them, right? We build this together. We invest in life change. We know Sunday is just the start. We bring our friends. We worship in spirit and truth. And I'm just going to be really honest with you. <laughs> the fact that we had to create these shows just like where we are in culture and I got to remind you, these are not meant to like serve as the pinnacle or mountaintop to our Christian walk. These are just foundational. These are just like the entry point into what it means to have a valid love or a genuine love for Christ and his church. Do you understand what I'm saying? Okay. Because to be honest with you, I was thinking about this. Like, it, it kind of like equates to like celebrating kindergartners when they graduate. Like, I think we've done them a bad thing when we graduate kindergartners graduating. <laughs> 
You know what I mean? Because if I'm a kindergartner and I graduate and I get my diploma, <laughs> you know, and I have my cape, you know, my cap and my gown, and I come home and I'm like, and there's a big party. I'm like, yeah, I've done it. I'm done. And I'm like, dude, you're just starting. Like, I'm really sorry. You got 12 more years of this stuff. It's like, what? These are not the pinnacle. These are the entry point. We build this together. We invest in life change. We know Sunday's just the start. We bring our friends. We worship in spirit and truth. I've got to tell you this. If we started acting as the church that God designed us to be, things would change dramatically. Now, I want to be, I always seek to be, honestly, as open and transparent as possible. Today, I'm going to be as, as open and transparent as, in, as possible with this. Is that okay? Okay. Because these are metrics, but these are entry point metrics, okay? Look at this. Uh, we build this together. That has to do with volunteers. But I got to tell you, we struggle every single week to have volunteers. Every single week. How about we know that Sunday is just the start. About seven out of ten people in our church is involved in a small group. Uh, how about we bring our friends? Uh, how about we worship in spirit and truth? Uh, here you go. This is an interesting, interesting one. We got around 300, 350 people every single week that come to this church, okay? And we know that, that on average, people attend church once a month. Do, do you understand what that means? That means if our whole church just was obedient in attending church, did I use the word obedient? I did. The scripture talks about don't forget to gather don't forget the gathering together. Don't forget the assembling together where two or three are gathered and my name, God, is there. And I know that church happens outside of these walls. Sunday is, is just the start. I get that. But when, if we were just to obediently gather together one hour a week, there'd be over a 1,000 people that showed up here every weekend. Now think about that. Now, that affects everything because we bring our friends. Normally, on a given week, we have about four to six first-time guests that show up. That's great. No, it's not. We're glad you're here, but we can do better. We know that 80% of people, 80% of the time, somebody will respond with a yes when you invite them personally to a church. If you have an entire church inviting people it wouldn't be, if our church was doing that obediently, listen, these metrics are crazy. It wouldn't be four, four to five, six people showing up a week, first time guests. It would be roughly what our average church attendance is every week. We'd have around 300 people, first time guests showing up every week. They're like, all right, get to the real one. Okay, money. We invest in life change. About 25% of us financially contribute anything to this church. Now, that's 6% higher than the national average. Don't, like, get pumped about that, okay? Because if you get a 19% on an essay and I get a 25%, we both failed, right? Okay. So at 25%, that means each week we bring in roughly around $9,000 a week. Like, wow, that's a lot of money. Yeah. Can you imagine if there was a 75% increase in that every week? Like, you're money hungry. No, I'm tired of the government doing what we could do ourselves. I'm tired of other people having to start organizations when it's the church's job to care for the needy and the orphans and the broken and the hurt and the widows. That's our job, man. That's on us. But we can't do that because churches can barely afford to pay their bills. Now, we're blessed. Don't get me wrong. Thank God for the 25%. 10% of that is your staff. 
And that's because it's their job. Sorry, I know that's real. Also, can I, I mean, you're probably not going to come back, so I might as well say stuff anyway. <laughs> Everybody's like, when we build in this church, it would have been built five years ago. So what's the solution? How do we become the church that Christ envisioned and died for and believes in? Well, here it is. We must start to reject consumerism in favor of a new way or maybe a restored way of thinking. Jesus gives us this in Matthew chapter 6. Look at this in verse 33. He says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and these things will be added to you. When we seek his kingdom, when we seek his righteousness, what is added, what is given to us? His kingdom and his righteousness. The problem is this verse stands in, in fierce contradiction to what we desire today. In fact, if we were to write our own modern day translation, our own modern Bible based on what we want, like Matthew 6, 33, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and these things will be added to you. If we were to just do that on our own and make our own version, it would sound more like America 316. Seek me first the kingdom of self and my pleasure and everything I want will be added unto me. That's what we want. I mean, if you're going to do the difficult job of waking up and dragging your kids here, fighting with your wife all the way, right, and you're going to come to church, we might as well be honest. Seek me first the kingdom of self and my pleasure and everything I want will be added to me. Listen, both of these verses make promises. Only one of them delivers. Point of note here, church is very important to Jesus. In fact, in Ephesians 5 and elsewhere in Scripture, the church is referenced as the bride of Christ. You should know that Jesus died for his church. You should know that Jesus loves his church. You should know that Jesus prioritized his church. It is his bride. It is his girl. He loves her. And if we're truly honest with ourselves, we view church as optional based on our own convenience. Clearly being the church, clearly coming to church, clearly living out church is just not that important to us. Can we truly claim love for the church of Jesus? Here's the point. You can't claim to love Jesus if you don't love the things that Jesus loves. Jesus says, why do you say you love me but you don't do what I tell you to do? And listen, renew your mind here, okay? Think differently. Fight to put away the consumerism mentality that we're born into because we aren't supposed to love something based on what we get from it. We love something based on the value that Jesus assigns to it. I mean, you want a better example than this? A mother carrying a life in her womb? A child? And we have an entire generation of people who say, what value is this adding to my life? This is going to take time. This is going to take finances. This is going to take resources. This is going to take energy. What value is this adding to me now? And because I have not assigned any value inherently from myself to it, I will remove it from me. And in the same way, we continue to abort the church of Jesus Christ over and over when Jesus has given it incredible worth and value. Not what can we get from it, not that it only serves us, but that we serve it. Jesus clearly wants us to have love for the church. Now, I, when I say that, I wonder if you're like, oh, you want me to fall in love with this church? 
You want me to love covenant. You want me to love the way that we do church. No, listen, of course I want you to love this church. I love this church. But as somebody who is trying to properly interpret and present scripture to you, I'm more concerned with you loving the church than you loving this church. And I mean that. I mean that. I am more concerned with you loving the church because there's a way that you could love this church and not love the church. There's a way that you could love the way somebody does church but not be church. There's a way that you could go and show up to church and not actually know what church is. So I am more concerned, scripture is more concerned with you loving the church than this church. Listen, I'm just gonna go hard. We are meant to be a tree that plants its roots into a body of believers. But most of us look like tumbleweeds bouncing around from venue to venue, church to church, place to place, wondering why we're not connected, wondering why we're sucking up salt, wondering why we're feeling empty. You haven't put down your roots long enough to even start to bloom. When we love Jesus, we love the things that Jesus loves. Second, when we love Jesus, we hate the things that Jesus hates. Now, I know we don't generally think of Jesus as a hater. We're like, Jesus is a lover. Yeah, he's also a hater. Jesus hates sin. And Jesus hates sin because sin separates us from him. Sin separates us from God. Jesus hates it. Uh, he also very much hates sin played out in his church. In fact, in a, I think it's comical. It wasn't comical at the time. Uh, it's interesting for sure. John chapter 2, we get an example or a very close encounter, a uh, bird's eye view perspective of this hatred that Jesus has about you know, when sin is played out in his church. Look at this in John 2, 13 and 16 through 16. It says, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Watch now. In the temple, his church, he found those who were selling ox and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Verse 15, what did Jesus do? And making a whip, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. He really does not like pigeons. Take those things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Why did Jesus get so angry at the people in this church? You're like, clearly, because they were selling pigeons. No, it doesn't have to do with the pigeons, okay? Jesus got so angry with these people in the church because they had turned God's house, his father's house, the church, into a place of consumerism. Jesus hates consumerism. Why? Because consumerism seeks to compete with the throne of God. Where consumerism says entice me, Jesus says surrender. Where consumerism says entertain me, Jesus says sacrifice. Where consumerism says chase me, Jesus says take up your cross. Where consumerism says take everything, Jesus says give everything. Consumerism says it's all about you. Jesus says it's all about me. Consumerism must be seen for what it is, a God who wants to compete for the throne of Christ in your heart. And so Jesus Christ hates it, and he will not stand for it. And so if the God of consumerism is on and in and leading your heart, I can tell you one fact. Jesus is not. There's only room for one on the throne of your heart. Is it the God of consumerism, or is it the God of the ages? 
is that the God who demands enticement, entertainment, or is it the God who says, I gave everything for you, everything. Listen, this approach, consumerism, I just gotta be honest, I'm gonna close with this, has nothing to do with being a true disciple. We don't follow Jesus for what he can do for us. We follow Jesus because of what he has done for us. We don't follow Jesus because he can make us rich. We follow Jesus because he has made a way. We don't follow Jesus because he can make us happy. We follow Jesus because he has died and he has risen again so that our sins could be forgiven. When we partake of the benefits without contributing, it will always lead to our demise and a church's demise. We want the benefits of Jesus, but we don't want the sacrifice to Jesus. We want the benefits of the church, but not the sacrifice of our time talent and treasure to his church do we love the things that jesus loves or are we embodying the very things that he hates let's pray father we come before you as your church individually and collectively father asking you i ask you to change our hearts our minds god we repent of our consumerism, I repent of my consumerism with your bride. That has no place in your house. That has no place in these walls. That has no place in our minds and in your temple, which is us. Forgive us, Father. Hear our prayer. Forgive us and heal us. Change us, shape us. May we be more than converts. May we be disciples. May we be more than consumers. May we be contributors. May we go to the broken places and the broken people that don't look like us or sound like us, believe like us or love like us. May we take Jesus there. May we build your house. May we serve your house. May we give to your house in the mission. And we learn and grow as disciples. Please, Jesus. Change us from the inside out. Thanks for listening to this message from Covenant Church. For more information on our ministries or to hear more messages just like this, visit us at covenantchurch.us.